Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. everyone is off to a great start to the week. Uh, tonight is our second Halloween show. Not all time, but uh, you know, just last week and tonight. But that does not mean we won't be covering doubles and dualities and doppelgangers. Uh, we have an expert in that cinematic theme. And he is returning for about his 10th night, night light appearance. Here he is, Robert W. Sullivan IV. How, how are you, Rob? Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me on the night light for uh, the Halloween special. Oh. Happy Halloween. It's my pleasure to be here, of course. Oh, yeah. Glad, glad you're here. Yeah, you, you've had a lot of success with your Royal Arch of Enoch, Pack with the Devil, uh, cinema symbolism, cinema symbolism, too, and you are now out with cinema symbolism three. So, uh, what was your motivation behind continuing your explorations of all these symbols and hidden? Uh, meanings in all these you know, largely horror movies. Yeah, I mean I mean the the it was just, you know, kind of like a continuation of the first two books. Um, you know, there was more movies that I wanted to analyze that I thought were worthy of analysis, um, that had a lot going on in them. At least I you know and and I obviously, you know, you some of the movies, for example, were you know, came out after the, the second and first book came out. I remember when I was doing the um, the second one, uh, the one movie that was just coming out was the Beauty and the Beast one, the live action one, and mm-hmm. I wanted to cover it, but it, I, I couldn't. I couldn't put it in part two. It would have slowed it up too much. It would have delayed it too much. So I thought, well, I'll just do that in part three. Um, but I did have a nice Disney section in part two. I thought, oh, this would really go well with it. But um, 
I did. I, I opted against. I put it in part part three, uh, the, the current book. And it's funny how how it works because you plan on certain things, and and it, you know you think to yourself, oh, I'll do it in the next one, and then you, the next one comes around. It's like, oh, you run out of space. I mean, I knew I, I was planning on for for the part three to cover more Disney. I was going to do that kind of dark phase that they had. Uh, mm-hmm. In the late 70s, early 80s, with movies like The Watcher in the Woods and The Black Hole, uh, something wicked this way comes, something like you know, movies like that. But right. <clears throat> it just it just didn't come to fruition. I just ran out of space. Uh, there was too many other movies I, w- I wanted to cover. So no, it's it's you know a continuation of of you know just continuing it on. And uh, even now, I've already started outlining part four. Um, there is a ton of movies out there that I, I want to talk about. Um, some are already out, some are <clears throat> out now, and some are coming out. Of course, and I'll wrap up on this, you know, the movies that I haven't seen yet, um, I'm speculating that they'll have an undercurrent and, and you know, an occult undercurrent. So I'm, I'm talking about movies like uh, The Matrix 4, which is due out in December. Um, and there's one that's coming out the end of this week, um, The Last Night in Soho. That looks like it's got a lot going on. It That, that looks like almost... You know, I haven't seen it yet, but that almost looks like it has a Gnostic underpinning with, you know, a false reality, a dream world or something. So, um, you know, Cinema Symbolism 4 is already being being outlined, and uh, it's just something I love to do, and it's something that um, I love writing about. Okay. Well, um, let us know when part four is out. And <laughs> yeah, that'll, that'll be a while. Okay. But, yeah, um, since... This is the you know, week of uh, costumes. Uh, let's look at Elvis's costumes. Um, you have a really fantastic, well-done chapter on Elvis. It doesn't seem like he'd be a candidate for uh, Cinema Symbolism 3, but... It, Elvis does fit in. So let's talk about um, the king's costumes. Well, the thing, the thing with it's funny. We were talking about this off off air, um, and this was something that started back in the first book. Was um, and and again, it's something that you know just comes straight out of the world of the supernatural. It's it's not. There's no human hand behind this. You know, you call it Jungian synchronicity, what have you. Um, but but the w- one thing I noticed, in, and I talk about in the very first movie book, was um, the solar sort of symbolism, how Elvis's life runs runs parallel with the sun, um, and it's quite sure. astounding. And um, I started ta- I talked about it briefly in the first book, and um, no one really asked me about it. I was somewhat surprised about it, so I thought. I, I fleshed it out a little bit more in the third book. I mean, certainly Elvis has made a ton of movies um, and, uh-huh. you know, is more probably obviously known in more for his music, of course, but was a Hollywood, you know, star. I mean, made made a lot of movies. So I thought, okay, you, you know, and, you know, I mean, he, you know, he associates with Hollywood. So I just thought, okay, well, that's fair game. And um, I, I just, I just did a chapter in CS3 just fleshing out more, of the solar symbolism iconography is probably the better word uh, uh, surrounding Elvis. And um, uh, like I said, when I did it in the first book, I was a little surprised. Not too many people asked me about it, but you know, that's okay. 
And uh, but now I guess with it having its own chapter in the third book, more and more people asking me have been asking me about it. And uh, it, it's one of those things where I kind of just tell people just read the book. Um, you know, you, you know, it's, it's better explained in the book than probably I could say it. But what it ultimately boils down to is um, <clears throat> there is just an overwhelming um, and it's example after example after example. And like I said, it's not a human hand behind it. it it's definitely coming out of the world of the supernatural um, that, you know, Elvis's career and his life is just surrounded with solar iconography from start to finish. And if you understand sort of, and I get into this in the book, sort of Elvis's place in, you know, the United States, you know, as the king of rock and roll, things like that, it kind of almost, you know, it, it explains itself. But again, it's, 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 it's so bizarre and so weird. Um, and like I said, I, I, it's, it's one of those examples that there's not a human hand behind it. It's, something that's supernatural. And I guess for me, that's what makes it much more interesting. I mean, you know, the, the one thing that I've, I, I've come to believe it in with some of this movie symbolism, not all of it, but some of it is you're definitely dealing with a supernatural element to it. I mean, it can't be planned out. There, it, there's no way possible a human hand could be behind some of this. Um, Elvis is one example. Again, the, you know, the nine 11 lead up, uh, is another one. So, yeah, I mean, I, I was real happy with the way the uh, Elvis chapter came out. And like I said, that was sort of an extension from the first book. It was, it was mentioned, I think, I, I briefly touched on it in the introduction, I think, in the first book. I have to go back and look. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's an interesting topic. And, uh, you know, like I said, I was happy with the way – I know you, you were saying you, you really liked it. And, uh-huh. um, you know, I was real happy with the way it came out. Oh, yeah, I, I, I... I was uh, once you started laying out Sun Records and the uh, Aztec Sun Belt in uh, Memphis, connecting all the dots that we we see all the time, but we don't really put it all together. Uh, you, You linked everything. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, it really – if this is something – a supernatural element, putting all this energy into Elvis and what he did for millions of fans for – what, uh, 20 years, a little over 20 years. Uh, um, it does se- seem like there's something supernatural that, uh, you know, brought, brought a lot of uh, joy to uh, people around the world. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's definitely it's definitely beyond a coincidence. I, I yeah. remember when I first started looking at this, it was just like, you know, you, you, it's one example falls after another and another. Mm-hmm. And you're like, Oh, come on, you know, no way. I mean, you know, and I mean, but it's there. I mean, it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's not, uh, you know, I, I mean, you can't it's not fake like his birthday. Right. Right. You can't fake his birthday. You can't fake the book he was reading. You can't fake when he died. Uh, you can't fake Sun records. It's just one example after another, after another, after another. And it became quite apparent to me, I guess, just as from coming from a legal background, we were obviously beyond a coincidence here. 
and it's not something that's, you know, this isn't something that a human planned out. I mean, this isn't, you know, a, a, a human hand behind all out of this. So the only way you can really recon, reconcile it is come up with, you know, th- that there is some sort of supernatural element involved in this. Now, what that is and what its motivation is or what have you, uh, we'd be speculating on. But it, it's without question, um, you know, uh, you know, an, an example of sort sort of the uh you know the, the 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 microcosm reflecting the macrocosm as it were that elvis you know sort of incorporating all this solar you know you know the as above so below almost of hermes trismegistus it's quite astounding like i said and uh it was it was something that i really when when i did for when i wrote about it in the first book i i, I started finding some more examples i thought well and when i was doing the third book when i was outlining i thought i'll do a whole chapter on elvis this um, let's give Elvis this whole chapter rather than just giving it a uh, honorable mention. Let's do a whole whole chapter on Elvis. And uh, I know you said it was probably your favorite part in the book, and uh, mm-hmm. thank you for that. And uh, like I said, I was real uh, – myself, I was real happy with the way it came out. Oh, yeah. Um, um, I really enjoy Elvis. Um, you know, I've kind of spoken about him here and there on a couple of occasions – when it came up, you know, just a couple of weeks ago was the last, what you know, was the last time uh, it came up in, you know, when we did the Jimi Hendrix uh, show, it came, came up briefly at the beginning. But, um, you know, it, it, it's, he's he just one of these people that people continue to gravitate to him and, you know the you know, little bit of lists of um, these sun imagery uh, reinforces the public's perception of him bringing light or you know, however you want to look at it. But and uh, uh, what was the name of the um, the book he was reading when he did I, I, yeah, I can't remember off the top of oh. my head, but it was I, I, it was about it was about the Shroud of Turin. It was one of two yeah. books, I believe, about the Shroud of Turin. The thing with Elvis is he's become a bit. It's uh, he's beginning re- of late. I've noticed they're reviving him a little bit. I know in uh, and they, and it's the same thing. They're it's the same uh, technique they're using um, to convey the same thing. If you watch. Uh, Blade Runner 2049 when they're when they're in Las Vegas and there's the holographic uh, Elvis performing um, the song he's performing the song he's singing is naturally Suspicious Minds and of course that reflects the two characters um, mm-hmm. of uh, Kay and Descartes because they're both suspicious of one another and then in the one movie that just came out this year um, the third Conjuring movie um, The Devil Made Me Do It. Um, there's a scene where they're driving to a, a crime uh, scene or a crime location and uh, suspicious minds once again is playing on the uh, radio and Lorraine that's Vera Farmiga actually makes the comment. She points it out and says, you know, this song could, uh, you know, best describes our, uh, the, the way we feel about each other right now. So Hollywood's, you know, for whatever reason, just two examples, Elvis seems to be uh, getting a bit of a comeback in, 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 uh, Hollywood all of a sudden, and uh, those are two. I, I loved in uh, Blade Runner 2049, where you know they go in and it's the holographic uh, king 
performing in Elvis. So, uh, yeah, he doesn't go away. Uh, you know, Elvis, I mean, my God, he was a superstar. And um, I don't know how many, you know, records he sold. And everybody, you know, for me at least, there's always – I mean, I, I like a lot of his songs. I've always been a big Elvis fan, some more than others, of course. Suspicious Minds was always one of my favorites. Burning Love, uh, His Latest Flame, that's a good one. Um, but, no, I mean, yeah, Elvis is uh, – you know, um, an interesting character, to say the least. And uh, like I said, the, the the solar imagery, the iconography that surrounds him, um, is just really startling and uncanny. And again, it it, it just can't be rationally explained. It's definitely um, you know coming from, emerging from the uh, world of the supernatural. Yeah, um, you know, it, it, it was. That was a chapter that gave me uh, a whole deeper meaning, appreciation of Elvis. And, and I think you just brought all your legal training and research and lawyer analytical skills to that, that one. I, I just that, – that was the chapter that just re- uh, appealed to me the most. But um, then, um, yeah, we could kind of move into you know a little bit more of uh, seasonal topics like uh, Frankenstein or the robot from Metropolis that is on the cover of uh, Cinema Symbolism Three. Sure, uh, I, I uh, you know. Michael Myers, and, and, and I also noticed, uh, where was it? <sighs> On, let me help if I turn the page. Um, there it is. I was reading... On page 288, where you're... Uh, you know, listing some of these mystics and out like Agrippa, Bruno, Michael Meyer, 1568 to 1622. Yeah, no, uh, no relation to the horror character. Okay, yeah, I, 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 that, that was my uh, one of my questions was, uh, yeah, what was the Halloween character based on the alchemist Michael Meyer? I just no, not none whatsoever. Okay, no, I, I, I just. I, Okay, I just wanted to, uh, but but we can look at uh, you know, maybe they live pet cemetery as some of these, um, uh, like AI reanimation soulless human type characters. Uh, yeah, that might be a topic where you could link a whole bunch of our some of our favorite movies and. Go, go into um, how the golem character from Jewish uh, folklore is you know, like a template for all those uh, characters. Yeah, well, that's that's it. It's 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 when you're dealing with you're dealing with the idea of. I mean, there, there's there's different things that. You know they're not all uniform. You have the Kabbalistic golem, an inanimate um, 
you know, it's, you know, it's inanimate and then it's brought to life and acts like a human. So this would be like Frankenstein's monster is probably the most famous example. Frosty the Snowman, Smurfette, oh. um, Roy Batty. I mean, these are all, you know, your Kabbalistic golems. These run parallel with uh, something that comes out of the Hermetica. Um, this is in the Latin Asclepius called, uh, you know, the statue making. Um, that man can make statues and animate them and do whatever he wants with them. So the Kabbalistic golem and the hermetic statue, um, you know, run parallel. Um, then you have like, you know, things like the mummy, which is, uh, you know, uh, a, a dead a dead person who's brought back to life, reanimated mm-hmm. and brought back mm-hmm. to life. Then you have the sonambulist, which is the opposite, which is a human being who's rendered dead. And he's just walking around sleepwalking. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, you get into these, uh, um, you know, these these creatures that are very popular, you know, Roy Batty from Blade Runner, the, the Frankenstein's monster. I mean, all these, you know, the, the, the artificial intelligence, this is nothing new. Um, this comes out of Jewish Judeo-Christian hermeticism, as it were. You know, it goes back to the golem, you know, which is, you know, the lump of clay fashioned, you know, into a human, brought to life by Jewish magic, numbers, gematria, things like that. Um, and again, this runs parallel with the hermetic statue, um, which is mentioned in the Latin Asclepius. Um, so, you know, and again, this is, um, you know, you, 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 you'll, you'll find this um, this stuff, you know, what, what I talk about is, you know, it predates Hollywood. Hollywood is just the latest iteration of this stuff. Um, but, you know, you, you'll find, like I said, you know, it's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I mean, the book obviously predates the movie substantially. Um, you know, you'll, you'll find this echoed in the works, you know, of Edgar Allan Poe with things like the Tomb of Legia, uh, you know, works mm-hmm. like that. Um, That's a good point, so, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, um, you know, you know these, these characters, the, the artificial intelligence uh, characters, you know, the, 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 the Frankenstein's monster, the golem, the statue, um, you know, these had their origins way, way, way back in time. Um, and, uh, you know, you're dealing with mystical doctrines such as Kabbalah and, you know, things coming out of, uh, the world of hermeticism. So, you know, it's, 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 it's a powerful force that Hollywood taps into, but again, um, and it's a point that I always, I always find myself making is, um, this stuff, this material predates Hollywood. Hollywood just happens to be the latest iteration of it. Um, but it, it, it's, uh, it, it's stuff that pre predates Hollywood. Um, and just real quick to wrap up the character of Michael Myers, the name Michael Myers is actually, he's named after a friend of John Carpenter. Um, I forget. He was like a movie producer or a financier of Halloween. Um, oh. that's, that's, that's where Michael Myers gets his name from. The, the Rosicrucian alchemist has nothing to do with it. Yeah. The, yeah. Halloween has so many of those uh, really interesting. Um, um, the, whole, the whole Halloween movie, Halloween part one is a Freudian nightmare. Um, <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's what it is from start to finish where mm-hmm. the, the kid I mean, the kid sees, I mean, from the beginning to the end of it, kid, the little boy at the very beginning, I'm, thinking, I'm talking about the very first Halloween movie, the one from 1978, mm-hmm. the kid is spying on his sister and her boyfriend screwing around, and the boyfriend puts on the clown mask, 
and then takes the girl upstairs and will keep it family friendly, but you know what happens. So what's the little kid do, Michael Myers do? He puts on the clown mask, and then he takes his phallic knife and does what the boyfriend does. And he, he confuses the knife with the sex act and stabs the sister to death with it. And this is what he does the whole rest of the movie. Um, you know, it's, 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 the, it's, a, it's a Freudian, you know, dystopian nightmare that this guy is living in. Michael Myers, the killer, who is completely rewired in his brain to confuse the sex act with the stabbing, you know, the, the phallic knife. Um, so the whole the whole Halloween movie, the first one, is basically this Freudian sexual nightmare um, that that is being presented, um, and then it even gets worse. Um, and I'll keep it family friendly; I won't get into it. But it actually becomes worse with the um, Jamie Lee Curtis character, you know, she, she, she gets involved with this, you know, she, she also has this Freudian collapse, um, you know, you know, this Freudian sexual collapse at the end of the movie. Um, so, so really the, the way to analyze the first Halloween movie is to understand that this is, this, this is dealing with the underlying theme in this thing is this Freudian dark sexual confusion that is being experienced by both Michael Myers. And then of course, if you want to assume part two is canon, uh, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis, Laurie Strode is his sister. So, I mean, you have this, you know, sort of incestuous, uh, you know, sexual Freudian storyline going on. That's probably more scary and, and evil, sinister and revolting than the murders going on on the screen. Um, when you when you look at the psychology of it, uh, so so that that you know ha- Halloween I think is a fantastic movie. It's one of probably my favorite horror movies of all time, but there really is um, you know this really dark sexual Freudian undercurrent with it that's very disturbing. Yeah, that's I think. You just profiled uh, Michael Myers uh, very well, like, uh, just what kind of killer he is. Just he he can't tell the difference between uh, sex and killing. And you get yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. That's exactly right. I mean, he's you know the the the, the you know the, the 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 stabbing is the sex act for him. Um, and you know it's it's the thrusting of the phallic object, um, and like I said, it's it's very dark and very disturbing and very Freudian. Um, but I, I really I really like the first Halloween movie. Uh, there's a lot going on in it. Um, it's very archetypal. I think it appeals to a lot of people because it 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 could be it could be anywhere USA. The story is very good. Um, there's some there's some, I, I've known this for a while. I'm not going to mention the William Shatner mask. That's too well fleshed out. We've you know I've covered that a million times. No, but everyone knows that now. But um, if you if you watch it, if you've watched it on TV, it's hard to see. But if you have like the Blu-ray disc of it, um, it stands out. And I've known this for a while, but people are just beginning to pick up on this now. And it's the scene where um, where um, Donald Pleasance, who is Loomis. And of course, Sam Loomis is the boyfriend in Psycho. I don't know if people are aware of this. A lot, you know, the, the whole thing oh. is 
yeah, the whole thing is based on, you know, is, is an homage to Psycho, Hitchcock Psycho. And Sam Loomis, Donald Pleasant's character, is named after the boyfriend um, in Psycho Sam Loomis. And, of course, the nurse he's hanging around with is named Marion. And, of course, Sam Loomis's girlfriend in Psycho is Marion Crane. Um, and, and Janet Lee is... Of course, right, is uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's mother. Mom, yeah. Right, and and but when 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 Loomis is talking to Charles Cipher, who is uh, Sheriff Brackett at the hardware store, Michael Myers is sitting right behind him in the car. Um, you can see him with the mask on and everything. He's shadowing Loomis, and he's at a traffic light, and you'll see him sitting there. Now, if you, if you don't have it on the wide screen or on the Blu-ray, sometimes it gets cut off. Especially, you know, this was true in the seventies and eighties when they aired it on TV. You, you couldn't see it, but if you get the widescreen Blu-ray, Michael Myers is sitting there right there in the car shadowing him. And uh, I, I've known about it for a while, but I'm, I'm, he, I, someone was pointing, oh, uh, for the first time, I didn't realize that was – I was like, oh, yeah, you know, Michael Myers is shadowing him. So that's always a fun thing to look for. But um, no, uh, Halloween, of course, uh, the first one, the immortal classic, as they say in part three. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it really encapsulates – I mean, if you ask me – if you ask me – to name two or three movies um, that encapsulate Samhain better than any other, that would be one of them. Trick or Treat would be another one. Um, that's an absolutely fantastic Halloween movie that I absolutely love. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, you know, great, great Halloween movies, great movies to watch this time of the year. Uh, no doubt about it. Okay. Okay. So your uh you know the michael's uh difficulty in distinguishing uh between sex and death r- reminds me of uh like full metal jacket and dr strange love so uh you know we can kind of make a little segue into some of the dualities in uh, The Shining and maybe uh, back up in to go into uh, Rosemary's Baby. And, you know, there's, you know, we can make a connection there with, you know, Roman Polanski and Jack Nicholson. Uh, so if I haven't confused the audience too much with uh, all these connections. Uh, you, but you, you, you can't draw too many connections from there. Everyone in Hollywood knows everybody. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, and just because Polanski knew Nicholson, I mean, that doesn't link him to The Shining or anything like that. Uh, Polanski was well out of the picture by the time The Shining was made. Um, but what, what, what I would say about... Uh, I, I was just thinking, like, Chinatown... Well, like with uh, with The Shining, um, this is a movie now that is being referenced all over the place. I mean, mm-hmm. and this is this is sort of the um, sort of like the quintessential now haunted house movie, um, and and this they they reference this all over the place now. I mean, and the one movie that came out, um, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Um, there's a shining reference where the one woman is at the end of the hallway, um, you know, coming out of the red room, red rum. Um, and then you have, and then the biggest one of all is the conjuring Two. um, James Wan, who has said that the shining is, you know, one of his 
favorite movies. And of course, The Conjuring 2 is a haunted house movie. I mean, which is what The Shining, the Shining is, of course, one of the ultimate haunted house movies. And, uh, you know, you know, not only do you have Valak there standing at the end of the hallway um, in The Shining, no, excuse me, in The Conjuring Part 2, which is, of course, a duplication, a replication of the Grady twins. Um, but, the, but the wallpaper is the same. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the wallpaper in The Conjuring 2 um, in, in Lorraine um, and Ed's house is the same from the hallway in The Shining. And then he, he takes it one step further. Um, that's not good enough. Um, so let's just put Stanley Kubrick in the movie. Um, and if you watch, if you watch The Conjuring 2, uh, the seance scene at the very beginning of it at the Amityville house has the Kubrick lookalike sitting there at the seance table. Um, and it's, it's Kubrick as he looked on the set of The Shining. So that's mm-hmm. just wonderful. Um, that's just a wonderful uh, Stanley Kubrick uh, referencing there. And again, it's contextual. You know, when, when you're dealing with a haunted house movie, try, you know, think of The Shining. Um, this is the one they're turning to. Um, in part two of the cinema book, uh, part, well, part two of the cinema book, in Cinema Symbolism 2, um, the one movie I broke down, someone was asking me about this on another show, was uh, Guillermo de Toro's Crimson Peak. Um, which is literally, literally a frame by frame remake of The Shining, um, and I get into all the parallels between The Shining and uh, Crimson Peak, and that—that's if you like the Elvis stuff, that one's just as astounding. Um, so you know, yeah, I mean, I mean Kubrick, you know, Kubrick is one of those grandmaster uh, characters. Certainly, The Shining is an appropriate movie for this time of the year, of course. Halloween, you know, you know, shining, great, great, great horror film. Um, and yeah, I mean, Kubrick is, you know, an expert at this material. Um, he's one of these guys like Darren Aronofsky or Ari Aster, you know, or James Wan even, um, who understands the material. He knows when to use it. He knows when not to use it. Um, he knows when to use certain things and when to hold back certain things. Um, Carpenter, John Carpenter is another one. Um, no question about it. We could throw him into that mix. Um, and, and that's what, that's what I always, you know, I'm harping on more than anything else when I, you know, when I write these books and the point I'm trying to make, you know, when I do these shows is, um, you know, it's, there's no uniformity to it. I mean, one of the things, if you, (laughs) of course, I've been on countless shows, including this one talking about Freemasonry and it's one of the oldest tenets and it goes, goes to, and it comes out of the world of Freemasonry. And that is when you're dealing with symbolism, there's always more than one interpretation. Um, you know, there, there's always more than one. There's always deeper meanings. You know, you have the profane meaning and then you have multiple esoteric meanings. Oh, the same is true for the movies. Um, just because you see a symbol in one movie, do not assume that that symbolism applies to it as being, as it is being used in another movie. You always, and I stress this, I try to stress this all the time is you have to look at the contextual placement of the symbol or the icon or the theme or the undercurrent, um, because it, it appearing in one, they have a different meaning in another. Um, and that to me is really one of the keys to deciphering this material is being able to apply the multi-layer of symbolism here, but not here, but here, but it's this interpretation here, but not here, but this interpretation there. That's when you can really start seeing what's going on. And that's one of the reasons why I like Kubrick so much is he knows when to use the symbolism properly and he knows when to pull back from it. Um, He uses lots of duality, as you said, repetition um, Mm -hmm. in The Shining, but not so much in Eyes Wide Shut. 
Um, and there's a reason for that. It's because the shining is all about reincarnation and rebirth and regeneration and the same thing happening over and over and over again. It hand to pan. It's the Ouroboros. Um, this is of course not the theme in eyes wide shut. So that, that to me is always the, one of the hallmarks of an expert filmmaker is when they can apply and apply it in one movie but then not applied in another, but go in another direction, you know, in that movie. Um, and then, you know, James Wan, again, you look at um, the conjuring parts one and two, which are the haunted house movies. But then when he goes to part three, um, which is more about demonic possession and not a haunted house movie, well, then he backs off the Kubrick shining references. Um, and I thought, you know, you know, that that's when you get into more of the exorcist um, material and things like that. So, you know, that's, uh, that, that's, that, that to me is always the, you know, the, the hallmark of, of an expert filmmaker is knowing when to use it and knowing, knowing the context to use it in and applying it properly. Um, with, you know, the shining, you know, you've covered, you know, the, uh, Grady twins, you know, the little reference to Portland, Oregon, or Portland, Maine. Oh, there's hundreds of them, Mark. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, there's, 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 there's. He uses rep- repetitive tropes and doubles all over the place. Kubrick does in that movie, and it's to convey to the subconscious mind the notion that the Overlook Hotel is a serpent biting its tail, that it never ends, that it's this endless reincarnation cycle that's constantly reoccurring. So, yeah, I mean, he, you know, what, you know, I mean, I don't have my book in front of me. I'm sitting here. I'm just got the TV on. I got the lights off. Um, But, you know, um, just off the top. Are you scaring yourself? No, I've got on, I've got on TV, but I've got it on mute. But, um, you know, I got my dog sleeping here next to me and uh, I don't want to bother with too many bright lights. I got the computer on, of course. So no, that, that, that's enough. I'm good. No, not, not okay. scared or anything like that. Um, no, Ro- Rosie here, my chihuahua is my guard dog. She, uh, she keeps everything <laughs> safe and, uh, you know, protects the house. But, um, um, yeah, Kubrick, um, uh, repetition, you know, so like, as you were saying, you know, there's, there, well, there's, one set of twins wouldn't be enough. So we have two sets of twins. We have the Grady twins, of course, everyone knows. And we have the two girls who are leaving, passed by Allman uh, when he's showing Jack uh, his, his apartment. You have the two the two adult at, twins who at, pass at Allman. The, at, the, at the beginning of the movie. Correct. Right. This is when, when uh, Allman is showing uh, Jack and Wendy their apartment inside the Overlook. I mean, you mentioned the two Portlands mentioned. We have in his wad, what are their 210s and 220s? Um, oh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean the number 12 repeats. Um, you know, there's he, when they go into the hedge maze, Wendy and Danny take 12 turns. Um, Jack throws the ball against the wall 12 times. Um, he hits the door with the axe 12 times. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's repetition, you know, all over the place, um, things repeating itself at the beginning, then at the end. Um, I, you know, I can't remember. I, I, to be honest with you, when I, when I was doing, I pointed all these out. It's funny you mentioned this and, uh, I don't have a problem saying this, but, um, I, I talk about this in cinema symbolism too. And when I was making the rounds for that book, um, and when I talked about the repetition, this signing, it's so extensive. I actually had a chart in front of me. 
that I'd have to read off of, um, you know, or, or, or refresh my memory because there's so many of them. Right. Um, and I, I just can't remember them all off the top of my head. Uh, it's like it's like the uh, stuff with Crimson Peak. Um, someone um, I was doing another show and someone was asking me about that. And I uh, actually got the book down off the shelf because I had to read off some of them. I can't remember them off the top of my head. But, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, The Shining is just an expert example of um, repetition, re- repetitive tropes. Um, yeah, I mean, and Kubrick, uh, it, and it's not a coincidence. I mean, it is no question intentional. So what – okay, so, so in The Shining we have – all this repetition that shows that you know, goes back to the line with um, Jack and Philip Stone in the uh, bathroom where Philip says, you know, you, you've always been the caretaker. That sets up the reincarnation theme. But how is something like Eyes Wide Shut um, different? And you're still dealing with maybe some of these esoteric themes, but you know Kubrick's taking us in a different direction with similar themes. Um, what's your analysis there of Oswald Shot? Right, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it's it's really similar themes. It's 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 kind of a different movie, and that's why it makes. Kubrick so great at this is because he gives you something different with Eyes Wide Shut than he gives you in The Shining. Um, and Eyes Wide Shut is one of those, this last film, it's Kubrick's swan song. Um, but again, what one of the things that Kubrick does in that film, um, you know, that, that it really stands out is the use of the Christmas lights. And the whole movie is just, you know, until they get to the mansion, um, the, the, the whole movie is surrounding the ills of humankind with these Christmas lights, whether it be child trafficking, child pornography, alcoholism, pornography, uh, prostitution, drug abuse. They're all intertwined with these Christmas lights. And it's not the little white ones. It's the big, bright, colorful ones, you know, that are purple, red, green, blue, yellow, what have you. Um, and Kubrick is doing that on purpose because then when you get to the Illuminati, you know, mansion, um, you know, with red cloak, you know, and that that's another one that he does when he makes the magic circle, he casts it Wittershins, which is counterclockwise. That's of course, black magic. Um, you know, when he gets there, there's no Christmas lights. And what Kubrick is trying to show you in that, you know, in, in that instance, contextually is, you know, this is where the real evil is, you know, that the stuff I've been showing you up until now is, this is where the stuff I've been surrounding with the Christmas lights is trivial as compared to the stuff going on that these guys are into. So that's sort of what one of the things Kubrick, um, you know, is doing in, um, in eyes wide shut. Um, and again, you know, even Kubrick, um, you know, the one thing that I don't think, you know, I kind of, I kind of point this out is, you know, I don't think, I, I think he does it just cause he can't help himself. Um, you know, I, I I just don't think he can help himself um, to use repetition. I, I think it's almost he just does it just to do it, um, or just you know does it just to, you know you know just to incorporate it. I mean, in in Eyes Wide Shut, you have the repetitive trope of the magic circle, um, where it's being you know it, 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 
it 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 turns up in the mansion, and then at the very end, where they're in FAO Schwartz, um, you see the 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 game Magic Circle. I think it's a magic trick game um, sitting there that the little girl walks by, um, and of course Nicole Kidman ends the movie on this very express, ex- explicit sexual connotation. I'll keep it family friendly, yeah. of course. And um, again, this is kind of harkening back to the carnality, um, you know, witnessed in the Summertown, you know, mansion, the Illuminati mansion. And, and you'll find this again in, in, you know, what you mentioned with uh, like Full Metal Jacket. Um, you know, again, it, it's not it's, it, it's not anything like The Shining, but it just seems like Kubrick just can't help himself no matter what to just throw in a little rep, you know, like his calling card almost, you know, where mm-hmm. you have um, – um, at the beginning of the movie, well, the first half of the movie, and I, excuse me, in Full Metal Jacket, where um, the Paris Island sequence ends, um, you know, with a reference to Mickey Mouse, you know, where Hartman is shot in the head by Gomer Pyle. There's a Mickey Mouse reference. And then, of course, you fast forward to the end of the movie. This is the second half when they're in Vietnam, and they're all singing the Mickey Mouse theme song. Um, which again harkens back to the end of the first half of the movie, back to the Paris Island sequence. So, you know, it's like Kubrick just can't help himself with it. Um, and again, you know, you know, I can't say it enough. When you're dealing with Stanley Kubrick, you are dealing with one of these expert, you know, grandmasters of this stuff. So, um, you know, when I when I watch something like The Shining and I see something new, or I see something hidden, or I see something new that's repeating. This doesn't come as a surprise to me. And uh, while I was looking for um, something in your uh, book, I, I did come across uh, this uh, start of a chapter with Elvis's uh, suspicious minds that in- introduces Blade Runner. Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, you, because yeah, go ahead. Oh, and, and I was just going to say, uh, you know, we, uh, uh, you said something about suspicious. The song "Suspicious Minds" was in a movie, and I was trying to find. Uh, it's, in, it's in it's in uh, Blade Runner two thousand forty nine. Yeah. When 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 Kay and Deckard are shooting at each other in the Las Vegas nightclub, there's a holographic Elvis singing "Suspicious Minds," which is appropriate because it's 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 what their mindset is because they're suspicious of one another. Um, and then it's 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 it turns up again in a movie that came out this year. It's uh, The Conjuring Three, um, The Devil Made Me Do It, and it's more it's it's not. It's more subtle in the Blade Runner movie than it is in The Devil Made Me Do It because she points it out. There, the, Lorraine, Lorraine uh, Warren is a psychic who can detect criminals, and she's being driven by a police officer to a crime scene, and he's skeptical of her. And um, the song on the radio that's being played is uh, Elvis's Suspicious Minds, and, and she makes the comment. She actually says it point blank. She says this song is something. I mean, I'm not quoting the movie verbatim, but she makes a comment, something to the effect of this song is appropriate because it's your mindset. You're suspicious of me. 
and uh, he says something. They make a joke about it. He says, yeah, you're right. Uh, and then he makes a joke to her. I'm just doing this off of my head. I, I, have, I have the movie here on Blu-ray. It's a good movie. Um, he makes a joke to her. He's like, have you seen Elvis? Did you see? No, no. She, she says, I saw Elvis. And then he jokes to her. She said, he says, uh, alive or dead? And her answer is both. So um, if you uh, check that out, that's in the uh, Conjuring Part 3, The Devil Made Me Do It. I love those movies. Um, all three of the Conjuring movies are great. I love the uh, um, – these are ones that are on the slate for uh, CS4 because they're overloaded with stuff. Um, the Annabelle movies I like. Um, I like The Nun, and I like The Curse of La Llorona also. So, um, you know, if you like studio horror, I think those movies um, do a great job um, – you know, bringing back, you know, studio horror films. Uh, I liked all three of the Conjuring movies. Part two was probably my favorite. Um, but I liked all the Annabelle movies. I liked The Nun and I liked La Llorona. So um, if you're into horror, I mean, it is Halloween. Uh, by all means, check out the uh, Conjureverse films. Okay. So, um, let's get, get into... Um, that scene in Rosemary's Baby with Notre Dame on fire. Right. Well, that's that's. It's actually in the book. It's actually what I, what I said was what I what I get into in one of the themes in the book is, you know, how movies can be prophetic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and this could this comes out of the world of these Christian mystics like Emanuel Schwettenborg and people like that. Um, and, you know, this comes out of the world of Plato, that the, you know, the creative act is a divine act and you're tapping into this ethereal undercurrent. And you will find over and over again that movies can be prophetic. And, of course, whenever it was in 2019, I think Notre Dame Cathedral caught on fire in France. And you go back to Rosemary's Baby, this very demonic film, and there's the painting on the wall of the church on fire. And it looks very similar to Notre Dame. If you read the book, and I made sure I put this in there, um, if you read Rosemary's Baby, the actual church, the painting of the church is St. Patrick's in New York City. Um, but you can't help. Uh, but when you, when you see it, think of, uh, you know, the no- Notre Dame. Um, and, the, and, I, and I always thought that the painting looked more like Notre Dame than it did St. Patrick's. Um, but, you know, this is just one of those examples. Um, there are many of them of, uh, you know, movies, moving, serving as, as prophecy. And again, and, um, you know, when you, when I look at this, the more I look at it again, and this kind of ties into what we were talking about earlier with Elvis, to me, at any rate, this seems supernatural. This seems to me, you know, to be coming out of the world of the supernatural. I mean, especially, um, the stuff surrounding nine 11 and the lead up to the event, um, that's too astounding. And I don't believe there's a human hand behind that. You know, I, it, it's, you know, all the nine 11 imagery that appears, you know, in the three, four year period prior to the, you know, day of nine 11, um, it's just remarkable. It's astounding. And it just can't be explained rationally. And because of that, I believe it's, you know, flirts, you know, comes out of this supernatural world. I can't explain it other than to say that, yeah, there's the Simpsons. Um, uh, what was the? Uh, um, yeah, there's the Simpsons episode. There's Fight Club. It, um, yes, yes. It, it, there are some of those uh, September 11th 
um, predictions, and it, you are uh, presenting in Cinema Symbolism 3, uh, how does Hollywood have this crystal ball type? Well, I don't, I don't think they do. Um, it, I mean, again, I think I they think have it's, a, it's a foreknowledge. It, it almost no, seems I, I like. disagree. No, I disagree. Okay. I think it's, I think it's turning up. There's no one planting that stuff in there. It's turning up from through some sort of supernatural act of creation. Oh, okay. And it's, it ties into Plato. It's Plato talked about this. The Greek philosopher, he said, the act of creating is divine. And this is actually in the Hermetica. Creation is a divine act. Um, and of course, what is a movie? It's a creation. And the idea is, and, and this is what guys like Emanuel Schwettenborg talked about. It's, you know, this, this act of creating is, you know, and, and again, it ties into Carl Jung. I mean, there's, there's, there's no, there's, you know, I mean, I'm not convinced in any way, shape or form. There's Hollywood producers saying, well, we have foreknowledge that there's going to be planes flown into a building. Let's put clues in our movies. That to me sounds pretty ridiculous, but how, I mean, but it's there nonetheless. So how is it getting there? I mean, how is this imagery turning up? And it's, it's, it, it ties into the world of Plato and Carl Jung of the collective unconscious that the idea of creation is this divine act, you know, and you're tapping into this ethereal realm. And because of that, you are, are subconsciously including whether you like it or not, um, prophecy, your, your, your film is becoming this prophetic device. What makes this so interesting with the nine 11 material, not all of it, you know, like you mentioned, The Simpsons and The Patriot with Mel Gibson would be two, you know, kind of examples of 9-11 imagery, but it doesn't really fit the mainframe, is the imagery, and this is what is really bizarre about it more than anything else, is, is the main imagery um, relating to 9-11 prior to the event um, is all coming out of these Gnostic films that hit at the last turn of the last century. And why is that? I mean, you know, why is it that there, there was this slate of Gnostic films of coming to consciousness, of awakening, of spiritual enlightenment? You know, and it's all the movies that we I've talked about a million times. You know, the Matrix, Dark City, Truman Show, Fight Club, Donnie Darko, Vanilla Sky, Existence. It's the slate of Gnostic films that all came out from around 1997 to 2001 at the end of the millennium, you could call it Pisces to Aquarius, what have you, that all involved this Gnostic reawakening. And this is where a lot of the 9-11 imagery comes out of. So, I mean, you, you, you have this, you know, it, it, it's psychological. It's, um, you know, it's, it's completely subconscious. Um, it's, it's like the holidays. I mean, you know, it, it's, it, it's, it's, you know, the microcosm reacting to the macrocosm. It's as above, so below. You know, you know, why is Halloween celebrated when it is, you know, you know, why, why is it that, you know, pumpkins and jack-o'-lanterns festoon porches on October 31st, you know, and horror movies and kids dress up trick-or-treating. You wouldn't do any of this on July 31st. Does anyone want to listen to Christmas music and drink eggnog on May 25th? 
Of course no. it's not. This is all psychological. This is the macrocosm affecting the microcosm. This is as above, so below. Um, and it's, 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 you know, it's, it's psychological. It, it's, it's the, you know, the, the macrocosm affecting the, the microcosm. It's the death of the sun. It's, you know, the earth moving around the sun while the sun dies on October 31st, the halfway point between the, you know, equinox, the autumn equinox and the winter solstice. This is the exaltation of the death of the sun. This is why kids dress up in costumes and go trick-or-treating to keep the evil spirits away. December 25th, the big celebration, the sun is reborn. You know, when the sun, the days start getting longer again. Um, you know, this is all, you know, the, the, the Easter, the celebration of the sun emerging from the tomb of winter. This is all psychological. This is all the macrocosm expecting the microcosm. Um, and uh, it's the same thing with these movies, with the, with these films. It's the turn of the millennium. It's the end of the old age, the start of the new one. And you have this slate of Gnostic films, but then what makes it, uh, makes it a double whammy is you got this 9-11 imagery in them. And again, I, I don't think it's intentional. I don't think Hollywood has a crystal ball. I think, again, it's completely supernatural. Um, and I think, I, in my opinion, at least my take on it, is because I believe it to be supernatural, I think that makes it much more interesting, at least in my opinion. Um, but, you know, it's there. I'm not denying it. I wouldn't even dream of denying it. I mean, it's it's well beyond a coincidence, the 9-11 imagery in, in, in film, um, you know, and, and then you have to try to account for it. Um, and that's that's the best explanation I can give you. Um, I, I don't really, I think, I mean, I, you know, I think it's kind of ridiculous to think, you know, that Hollywood, you know, had foreknowledge of this. I don't buy that. Now, Hollywood does work with the government, um, to plant things in films, that's documented. I mean, right. you know, clear, clearly you look at the, uh, you know, Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce, Sherlock Holmes movies by Universal. The first couple were completely war propaganda. Uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy, the rail gun uh, appearing in uh, the one Transformer movie was intentional. So, you know, I mean, the government the does get involved. Yeah, The Exorcist, sure, with Blatty, with the CIA, of course. Um, so, you know, you do, you, you can get involvement, but I, I don't think that's the case with uh, the 9-11 stuff. I, I think that's, I, I think, again, you're, you're delving into the uh, world of the supernatural with that one. Okay. Just my opinion. No, uh, uh, that makes sense. Rob, did you want to uh, uh, take, um, get, get a drink of water and yeah, so let's see here. Yeah, we're we're right. We're at the top of the hour, so let's take a break. Um, okay. Ten minutes of work, and then we'll we'll finish up. Okay. Yeah, you know, I'll 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 talk with Barbara. I just uh, I didn't want to start into yeah. something. I didn't know if you want to put music on or if you wanted to talk to Barbara or I can put yeah. it on mute. I'll be back in ten minutes. I can give my my website real quick if you want. Although you got a link to the page. Um, yeah. I I, I, give, I give the listeners. Uh, uh, your your website and uh, uh, get get a drink of water and uh, you know, uh, Barbara and I will talk for a few minutes. Yeah, sure. Well, thanks, Mark. Of course, that wraps up the first hour. Uh, my website is my name. My name is Robert W. Sullivan the Fourth. So my website is just that, Robert W. Sullivan I V the letter I the letter V dot com. Robert W. Sullivan I V dot com. Uh, check it out. It's a very easy site to navigate. Uh, links to buy the books, um, information about me, of course, information about upcoming shows 
I'm going to do, and such as this one. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you're interested, and of course, there's links there to buy the books. They're available in all the major online retailers, Amazon, Books A Million, Barnes & Noble. You get the ebook or the print edition. That's no problem. Uh, again, my website is my name, robertwsullivaniv.com. And uh, with that, I will put the microphone on mute. Uh, okay. I will take a 10-minute break, and I will be back in a little while, and we'll finish up with another, like I said, okay. half hour, 40 minutes or so. Uh, okay. Yeah, uh, so, I'll be back. So, Okay. Okay. Get get a few extra ice cubes in there uh, to hold, hold you over for the next uh, few minutes. But you know, uh, Barbara, one one of the nice things about uh, Rob's books is it gives you these uh, very clear definitions of um, these ideas from. You know, way back in time, um, and like here's an example. Uh, we're talking about Michael Myers or uh, Frankenstein uh, as golems, and he he defines the term as the golem is a creature, particularly a human being, made in an artificial way by virtue of a magic act through the use of holy names. The idea that it is possible to create living beings in this manner is widespread in the magic of many people. Especially well-known are the idols and images to which ancients claim to have given the power of speech, and, et cetera. Okay, and, you know, Rob, uh, in the chapters where he devotes a lot of uh, space to these concepts or it just has um, uh, a paragraph uh, devoted to just uh, one character, golem-like character from another movie. It really does make a lot of sense that these characters really are rooted in antiquity and almost like uh, Adam and Eve are basically like created out of clay and or, or Adam's created out of clay and uh, comes to life and basically the same thing but you know Rob has this really interesting knack of pointing out a character like the beloved Frosty the Snowman. It's well, basically he, the same kind yeah, But no, it's he, the same same kind of concept as Michael Meyer or Frankenstein. Or he, Frankenstein's um, monster. He actually ruined ruined movies for me in one way um, because he <laughs> and anybody who's going to read Rob's books, I I, I highly recommend. <clears throat> excuse me, personally, that you start with one and then go through two and then three. Um, he he hands out archetypes, and then suddenly you're looking at the movies and with a whole other. Um, set of eyes. You're you're recognizing archetypes. Yeah. You're rec- you're recognizing 
how they're using um, the scenery to to make to to give you a a subliminal message as to the fact that something is going to happen or that this is a negative or a happy place and it's it's in in a lot of cases in in one and two I had not only read the, seen the movie but I'd read the book as well and it 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 made it far more I I think reading the book um you you pick up the symb- for me I pick up the symbology faster reading the book than I do actually watching the movie and he he has he has a way of showing how these archetypes are in our lives and therefore you take a look at some of the relationships you have and things like that and you understand that there are archetype people are playing archetypes in your life and 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 kind of understand you know he said stuff was supernatural and and I and I believe that that a lot of the archetypes that are in these movies are not intentionally put there but they're there to remind us of concepts within our own lives that we can watch for mm-hmm. look at and utilize and with the golem I you know that that word to me is so reminiscent of of course Lord of the Rings with with um right the golem golem you know uh the golem and you know while while it was not a um it was a person that that had gone through such a change that in a in a way it had been created by the atmosphere that it was in and um you know you you tend to then there is a carryover subconsciously within our lives when you have this kind of information that that information is then utilized within your own reality which is fascinating At least it was mm-hmm. I, 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 I mean, it, yeah, no, no, I think uh, Rob does an excellent job of bringing his legal training of, you know, digging deeper, uh, looking at all the evidence to really uh, flesh out the meanings of the characters and uh, stories, all these different uh, themes throughout a movie or um, in a director's and, and... uh, throughout his whole career, and you know, I asked, yeah. uh, I, asked oh. I asked him once if directors and authors were aware of what they were doing when when they you know put these archetypes in or these these um, graphic situations that are going to send a message to your subconscious. And he said he really didn't think that you know in some cases they did. But in many cases, they didn't. And I think it was brilliant for him to pick up on all of this information. And when you think of how much he had, how many times he has to watch these dang movies in order to get uh-huh. all this information out of it, I, you know, it's got to be 
10, 20, 30, 40 times you've got to go through to, to, to catch all the nuances. It's got, um, it's enough to make one crazy. And, of course, I've, I have two movies that have been on my list for him to analyze for years now. And um, I wanted him to do Interstellar, and I wanted him to do Avatar. Mm-hmm. I felt they, they, Avatar especially has all the makings of those kinds of situations. I, it would be, it, I would be fascinated to hear at some point in time, he, he'll get to it eventually, I'm sure, um, this life or next. Um, but I, I, would, I would dearly love to, to hear what he has to say about Avatar. Have you seen that one? I have not. Oh, Mark, how could you not? <laughs> well, um, I, I was busy. I was busy uh, reading for whatever show yeah. was that week. That's what you're getting for Christmas. <laughs> uh, the Blu-ray blue, blue version of Avatar. Yeah, it, it, it'll come right at you. <laughs> Okay. Well, there's no, it's, it's, another uh, an, another movie, Rob. Um, uh, three. <sighs> sorry, sorry about the the. Uh, Sometimes it's a little hard reading the introductory, uh, you know, uh, pages when they're written in Roman numerals. But but yeah, um, one. In cinema symbolism too, you know, Rob does talk a little, uh, you know, has, has a little bit of information on um, the uh, Umberto Eco's uh, book, The Name of the Rose, and you know, it also became a very popular um, movie with uh, Sean Connery in the. It came out in the early '80s, but um, and also on the same page, um, Rob also uh, uh, wrote. Uh, uh, furthermore, in Cinema Symbolism, you know, the first book I'm reading out of Part Two, uh, this author identified these similarities between Papa Smurf and Karl Marx. And that the Smurfs <laughs> symbolize the perfect socialist Marxist society. Since all right, they back. all back, Mark. Uh, okay, since they all work without pay, wear identical outfits, and live rent-free in generic uniform housing. Okay, you know, most people aren't going to make the connection between Karl Marx and the Smurfs. But you know, Rob's insights into um, you know, the, some of these characters or situations in his books does make some uh, 
really e- excellent points, uh, gives you new insights, uh, uh, that kind of thing. And, and, and that's why I you know, have, have really enjoyed um, reading Rob's books, learning the how what people were thinking maybe 5,000 years ago, how these ideas uh, may have remained constant, changed over the millennia, but Rob really does a lot of research to make these different philosophies available to the readers, you know, uh, Rob has a writing style that makes it understandable to put yourself into the the way uh, some of these people developed philosophies a lot, uh, back in uh, antiquity. Okay, so I, I'm I'm done with my rant now. So. Um, but um, Rob, what, um, since you do have um the robots on the cover of Cinema Symbolism Three, you know, uh, you do, um. That's one of my favorite movies, anyways. Uh, but you know, you also do get into uh, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and you know, when Miguel was a guest with us, uh, you know, in late spring, you know, he's talking about all the archons keeping people asleep. Um, you know, the, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Um, Does seem to kind of get into that uh, mind control idea. Uh, You you also look at Jacob's Ladder, which is a far more recent movie, but that that also explores um, like the MK Ultra program. So, so. you know, back in well, like 1919, when the Cadman Doctor Caligari came out, and Jacob's Ladder with Tim Robbins in the what 85 or so when that came out. Um, you know, how do we see this mind control uh, topic being developed uh, throughout cinematic history? I don't. I don't. I mean, I mean, the 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 Jacob's Ladder movie was just basically documenting. But the CIA did, which was the mm-hmm. MK Ultra. Um, mm-hmm. The the um, that movie, Jacob's Ladder, is sort of the forerunner of the Sixth Sense, um, which you know it, it, it has the twist ending on it. Right. I I I never saw. Um, That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, I never saw Jacob's Ladder in the theater, and I saw the Sixth Sense before I saw Jacob's Ladder. 
I saw I saw Sixth Sense in the theater, and it wasn't probably until about five years later, until about oh four or five, somewhere in there, that I finally got around to seeing Jacob's Ladder. I think Jacob's Ladder came out in November of nineteen ninety, um, and it, you know it's like whoa, because you know you will completely see where the Sixth Sense got its idea from. I mean, it's it's you know, but no, they they get into. The Jacob Ladder gets into the thing. It, it, they they use the CIA mind control element to, um, you know, you know, to to, to to throw doubt on to this guy's situation. Is he hallucinating this stuff? Or, you know, what are these things he's seeing? Um, you know, is it is is it a product of this of this you know mind control experiment? Um, you know, they they tie it into like Agent Orange, also at Vietnam. You know, is 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 he having some sort of these hallucinate you know hallucinations that he's experiencing tied into this experiment that was done on him while he was in Vietnam? You know, or is it something else? Well, we come to find out it's something else. Um, it, you know, it's not that. You know, it's it's something else. Of course, you know, I guess I give the spoiler away. It's he's dead, um, and what he's seeing are demons, quite literally. Um, you know, and if you listen to the uh, DiNardo speech, uh, when, you know, that, that one line that he says, this is the Danny Aiello character, he tells him right then and there what, what's going on. You know, I mean, he, he explains to him the whole situation. So, um, yeah, I mean, Jacob's Ladder is a great film. That's Adrian Lyne. Uh, he, he's very uh, esoteric. Um, he maybe not as much as Kubrick or Aronofsky, but his movies always uh, always are, 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 are have stuff going on in them. Uh, the Sonambulist is the opposite of the Mummy. Um, you know, the Mummy is the human brought back to life. The Sonambulist is the human rendered dead. Um, and this the first movie. Um, you know, I, I guess the more parallel I would see with them is it's the movie the the uh, Cabinet of Caligari is the movie with the first twist ending. Um, the unreliable narrator, and uh, you know the the one thing that's astounding that that I, re- I really I really liked was um, how much Joker pays homage to that movie, and there's a reason why, of course, huh. and the reason is is because Caesar, the somnambulist, is Conrad Veidt, um, and who's he? Well, he's the guy who was in The Man Who Laughs. What's that? Uh, well, that's Bob Kane's inspiration for the Joker. Um, and of course, if you're familiar with Caligari, it has the false narrator, uh, twist ending. And of course, if you watch Joker with Todd Phillips, you know, what's that? Well, it's the twist ending and it's the same one. It's the, they're in the institution at the end. It's the false narrator. That is a complete reference to, to Caligari and Conrad Veidt, who of course is the physical appearance of the Joker. Uh, so I thought that was fantastic. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, I, I loved how Todd Phillips' Joker went all the way back in time to uh, reference uh, Caligari. Um, that was f- fantastic, and I, I, I was—I <clears throat> think I told you this off air. Um, I mentioned it briefly on other shows as well. Um, I had Caligari in there, and then in early let's see, this was early January of 2020. I saw Midsommar and Joker. And I was so impressed with those that I decided to incorporate them in CS3. And I'm glad I did. Uh, it slowed the publication of the book down, but, you know, that's fine. And uh, I think it's good because I think it works better because having Joker in the same book as Caligari, I think, is important because those two movies are interlinked through Conrad Veed and the twist ending with the false narrator. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, 
you know, those movies are not lost on modern day Hollywood. You really do have a wide variety of movies you're covering in your books. And like like you just mentioned, Midsommar uh, it is a newer movie. Uh, you're uh, including uh, these new, uh, new directors who uh, really caught your eye. Uh, you weren't um, you weren't limiting yourself to you know, between you know, this date and this date. Uh, you, you, know, you are providing a comprehensive view of so many of these movies that are uh you know linked some way through uh solar imagery um i i you do a commendable job of um keeping the movies that you're putting in your books current Yeah, I mean, I think I think for me personally, um, I analyze movies that feature these undercurrents, these occult mm-hmm. undercurrents and themes. Um, that's number one. Um, you know, if the movie doesn't have it, you know, and it doesn't make them a bad movie, that so I don't talk about it, you know, per se. I, I've never, I've never in any one in any one of my books, one, two, or three, analyzed a Quentin Tarantino movie. Um, just simply because the movies are devoid of anything worthy to talk about, I believe, on an esoteric level. I like the movies. I like Pulp Fiction. I like Reservoir Dogs. I think his most recent ones have been big disappointments, but that's just me. Um, not a fan of his more recent films, but I do like I, I do like Pulp Fiction. I do like Reservoir Dogs. Beyond that, not so much. Um but um, you know, so so that's number one is 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 you know you know the, 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 it has to be present, um, and you know I have always um, you know tried to keep it ver- you know a wide variety, and I've I, I, I do I do span the time frames because um, it's um, it do- it does I mean you'll find it in movies from the very beginning of Hollywood on the, all the way up to modern day, um, and you'll find that you know I've, I've mentioned this on other shows probably talked to you about it. And I, I know it's in the books. Um, you know, this 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 predates Hollywood. Hollywood is just the latest vehicle of it. I mean, you will find this imagery in the works of the 19th century. You know, American Renaissance authors. You know, such as Edgar Allan Poe and Herman Melville and Emily Dickinson and people like that. You'll find it in the works of Richard Wagner, the Ring Cycle operas. You'll find it in the works of Mozart. You most certainly will find it in the works of William Shakespeare. Um, you know, you were mentioning. Um, about Papa Smurf being Karl Marx, uh, the personification of political figures um, is nothing new. Uh, the Wizard of Oz is William McKinley. Doc Brown in the Back to the Future movies is Ronald Reagan. Um, in Shakespeare, you know, Prospero is John D. Barone is Giordano Bruno. Um, so again, nothing new. 
Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, uh, the one thing that uh, the the one movie like uh, we were talking about is I'm doing. I just started outlining success for. This is still a ways off. Was the one movie that is most recent that I just watched. I have it here is uh, Cruella. Uh, lots going on in that one as well. Um, and the one thing that I've noticed, I think, I think me personally, I don't want to pat myself on the back. The, the, the pointing out of Easter eggs and talking about this stuff has become a cottage industry. When I first started doing this back in 2012 with the Royal Arch, which was really, you know, the first book that I talked about it, um, this was a something that was in its infancy. You know, nine, ten years later, now this is a cottage industry on YouTube. I personally think I have a better knack for it than anyone else. That's why I continue to do it. So I'm going to do a CS4. Um, but all, almost the reason I, I point that out is, like I said, I'm not trying to toot my own whistle, but just, you know, me personally, I've watched some of the videos, and I think they miss a lot of stuff that's going on. They pick up on some, but not not a lot, not a lot, not all of it. But um, the one thing that I have noticed of late is it's almost a case of Hollywood, you know, with this material. It's almost like the uh, – you know the what, what's the old expression? The tail, the tail wagging, the dog wagging, the, the tail wagging the dog. That's it. Um, where it, it's it's become such a cottage industry that now Hollywood is more cognizant of it and incorporate, you know, and doing it more purposefully, um, as it were. Where in the past, you know, in the, you know, up until the last ten years, it was more subtle and more maybe under the table. Um, now it's more, you know, in your face with it. You know, where the Easter eggs are probably maybe more a little obvious. Um, you know, that then they would have been in the past. Um, you know, for example, I, 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 I'll, I'll say something and then I'll leave something alone. Um, the one movie that I was just mentioning, Cruella, this is the one that came out back in the summer, you know, with Emma Stone. This is the Disney villain origin movie, which I did like. I did like the movie. Um, I mean, there's some Easter eggs in that that are very obvious, you know, you know, and especially if you see 101 Dalmatians, it's very easy to pick up one. There is an undercurrent on it that is very, very well hidden. I'm not going to say what it is. It will be in part four, um, but it is almost next to impossible to pick up one. And it requires something else, which it requires familiarity with something else that I have a little of, but not a whole lot. Um, and I'll probably have to try to re familiarize myself with this topic before delving into Cruella. Um, but it's there. It's definitely there. Um, so, you know, like I said, it's, it's the one thing I've noticed more recently is, is, is it seems more the Easter eggs and the undercurrents are maybe more a little obvious than they were um, in the past. And I think that's because Hollywood is, like I said, is kind of reacting to this sort of budgeting cottage industry, you know, of, of placing these esoteric undercurrents and themes and symbols and characters in films. So um, it's there, you know, and like I, you know, it's there, Mark, and, uh, you know, it, it spans all of Hollywood and it predates mm -hmm. Hollywood. So, um, you know, it, it continues, as it were. Yeah. Uh, um... <coughs> You're talking about predating Hollywood, and you know, I, I really did like since I enjoy history and a lot of the themes behind the, uh, the shows on Nightlight do deal with history. Um, you had a really good section on La Belle Epic. Um, that 
you know, just got the book started, you know, put, puts the audience in that time frame and like Paris in the 1870s to the you know, start of the First World War, you know, Monet and Manet and, you know, those painters or, you know, some of the artists you think of uh, from from that time, but yeah, you, know, you did a, a, a really excellent job of you know, just kind of explain the art scene in Paris and how it uh, would eventually influence uh, Hollywood. You, you want to spend like a couple of minutes talking about the sure. importance of that section? I, I, I that's another. Uh, chapter I thought you, you did a terrific job on that was the uh, that's the first that's the introduction of the book I, I get mm-hmm. into that and, and yeah I mean it is you, you you definitely get into this sort of occult artistic flavor um, you know with that time frame in Paris um, and it certainly carries over into Hollywood I mean there's there's no, no doubt about it I mean you know that that whole era you know, when you write it, you know, runs from about 1870. It's the Third Republic of France, um, you know, up until World War One. I, I guess it's pretty much extinguished. I think that's, you know, it's like 1870 to, you know, 1912 or so um, that we're talking about. And and it, but 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 right at that time, at the end of World War One, is you get the birth of Hollywood. So you definitely get that, you know, transference of that sort of occult artistic vibe. Probably more, you know, with guys like, you know, Levy, you know, who's revived and Pappas and Paladin, you know, and, and, and that, that character, you know, and then you get the act, you know, Sarah Bernhardt, you know, those characters, you know, Baudelaire. You, you could, yeah, you could, you could see a parallel of where this was going, as it were. Um, and it kind of, you know, you know, it, how it was carried on from France, basically to California and to Hollywood. Um, I mean, I think it's, you know, I, I like that too. I, I, I thought that portion came out well as, you know, as well as well. Um, and, you know, and you get into the whole thing with, you know, the creative endeavor with Lucifer, with, you know, purloining fire from the abyss and, you know, the creative spark coming from hellfire, not from above, um, you know, and, you know, gets, you know, to sort of the dark, you know, aspects of it um I, I, you know with Alathus levy and pappas and and those characters um uh, what's his real name it's uh i forget it right now um but but at any rate no i, I the, the the point the point i was making with that was um and it is it's the introduction of the book it's the um comes right into the preface was um how how this sort of vibe in in france at the time in paris at the time may have been extinguished by World War One, but it certainly carries on in Hollywood. Um so yeah, I mean I mean like I said, if you if you read the book, you know, you'll you know you'll you'll stumble upon that right away. And I'm a big history buff myself and of course if you're into that, you know, by all means take a look at the Royal Arch of Enoch, which was my first book, which is really a lot of history and philosophy. Yeah, I it was it, it was well done and I think see where I mean, it, 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 you do have periods like that where you know, it's like shifting 
cultural centers and uh, with the First World War going on in Europe, it ends up in America and Hollywood's founded by uh, Masons. So you can see how the uh, people establishing a business empire, you know, whatever term you want to use, where some of those early influences really never go away. And, and, and I think you make that point, and you know, here, here it is, uh, hundred ten years later, and um, you know, you're pointing out, you know, Midsommar has you know the same, the most latest movie that you just uh, wrote about. Yeah, has a connection to, uh, you know, uh, early uh, develop or early stages of the development of Hollywood. So I, you know, I thought if people are looking for an understanding, read the introduction. Uh, it, it, you know, it's. Uh, you do a terrific job with it, and let's see what. Um, Seeing, oh, uh, another movie that um, I I don't think we've discussed on all the times you've been on. Shows where I've hosted. Um, I thought it was a really interesting movie uh, when I saw it, and I just saw it the one time. Um, and I, I, I'm glad you, you have a lengthy section of it in Cinema Symbolism Three, but it, it's a uh, Pan's Labyrinth. Oh um, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That's a, that's a good one with Guillermo. Um, is another one of these guys who is very adroit. And again, you're dealing with, when you're doing fairy tales, that's a fairy tale. You're dealing with mm-hmm. what's called the rule of three, um, which permeates uh, fairy, fairy tales. They did a good job of putting in, um, this in that new movie, it came out, well, new movie came out, uh, Gretel and Hansel uh, incorporated some of this as well. So no, um, no, I liked, uh, you know, you, you, you got, you know, you, you got some, uh, you know, an Alice in Wonderland vibe going on in Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, you know, you got the, uh, you know, magical, you know, element, you've got the Wizard of Oz, you know, element going on in that as well with the red shoes at the end. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I like the movie, uh, and it was one that I, I took on, um, and I'm a big fan of Guillermo de Toro. Um, I, like I said, the probably the, the one that is just overloaded is Crimson Peak. Um, that one I could talk about. I mean, I could do a, probably a five-hour show on that one alone. Um, but no, Pan's Labyrinth was good, and of course, The Shape uh-huh. of Water. Of course, that that one's near and dear to me because it takes place in Baltimore. Um, and there are certain things in there that I think you have to be from Baltimore to understand. Um, that, you know, well, I mean, I don't say that; I know that. Um, 
you know, like, I mean, I know, you know, where, where he meets the one guy that's obviously supposed to be the Sparrows Point steel mill. Um, the movie theater is obviously supposed to be the Senator movie theater in Govins. Uh, but you have to be from Baltimore uh, to pick up on that. So, no, I, li- I like I like Guillermo de Toro, The Rule of Three in Pan's Labyrinth, um, some Alice in Wonderland motifs. I'd have to go back and, and thumb through the book uh, to remind myself. That's what's just coming off the top of my head. But, no, I'm, I'm a huge fan of del Toro. And, um, yeah, I mean, again, one of these guys, he's like, you know, you could put him up there with, you know, Aronofsky and Ari Aster, definitely an expert in uh, movie symbolism. Oh, so, so here it is. So it's uh, it's ten thirty six. How about if we, uh, if I wrap up at this point? Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, if if your voice is getting uh, tired or you, know, you need to get back to work, that's fine. I um, uh, I am very appreciative that um, you had a chance to uh, be, be a guest with us and uh. I, I highly uh, recommend you know, your cinema symbolism uh, trilogy. Uh, uh, Rob, do you, uh, as long as you want to discuss uh, you know, how people can get get your sure. books, and uh, we'll uh, wrap up the uh, evening. Yeah, well, first off, thank you again, Mark, for having me on the Nightlight. Uh, you know, I enjoyed the uh, Halloween special. Uh, definitely certainly covered enough horror movies in there, um, but we kept it, uh, you know, varied, which is always good. We don't want to concentrate mm-hmm. on one thing and one thing only. So, again, thank you for having me on. It was my pleasure to be here this evening. Um, and happy Halloween, everybody, of course. Uh falls on uh, Sunday this year. Um, so, um, yeah, I, you know, my books are – I have five books published um, – uh, there will be some more on the way. I'm in the process right now of doing some edits to some of my earlier works. Um, these will not be new books. These will just supplant the ones that are currently existing. Um, but the books are all available online through all the major online retailers. This would, of course, include Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Books A Million. Uh, they are in the print edition. Uh, they never go out of print. Um, and the ebook. Um, you can get the Kindle or the Nook um, of course, they're a little, much cheaper than the print edition. Of course, there's no expense. Uh, don't have any paper or ink or anything like that. Um, and uh, if, if you go to any of the online sites and just type in Cinema Symbolism or Cinema Symbolism 3 or The Royal Arch or Pack with the Devil, you'll, you'll get the hit. Um, of course, you can go to my website, which is my name. Uh, my name is Robert W. Sullivan IV. So my website is just that, Robert W. Sullivan. And then for the fourth, it's the letter I, the letter V for the Roman numerals, IV. Robert W. Sullivan, IV.com. There's links there to purchase the books. Um, there's information about me. There's my uh, biography. Uh, there's information about upcoming shows that I'm going to be on, such as this one. Um, there's a right now. There's a bit of a video archive on the media page about my, you know, featuring some of my most uh, recent interviews. Um, so yeah, go there, um, check it out. It's a very easy page to navigate. And uh, again, uh, you know, if you're interested in what I've been talking about, check out the books. You can get the print editions if you want. Um, you get the Kindles or the eBooks if you want. Of course, take your pick. Uh, check it out. My name is Robert W. Sullivan the Fourth, and that's my website, Robert W. Sullivan IV.com. And I'll conclude by saying thank you again, Mark, uh, for having me on the Nightlight. It was my pleasure to be here this evening, and uh, happy Halloween, of course, to everybody. Uh, it's tis the season, and uh, Samhain is here, and uh, happy Halloween. Okay. What? 
thank you very much, Rob. Uh, keep us posted about part cinema symbolism, part four. You're always welcome to come back. If you want to do cover anything else, just let us know. You, you know, you're always welcome. So, um, hey, uh, yeah, I hope yeah, everyone I'll, enjoyed. I'll, I'll, shoot you, I'll shoot you an email tomorrow. I'll shoot you an email tomorrow. Okay. That uh, uh, sounds great. And uh, I just want to th- thank the uh, listeners for tuning in tonight. And thanks, Rob. Thanks, uh, Barbara, for producing the show. Um, let's see. I don't don't know if we have have a show. I'll see everyone. I think next next Tuesday. Mary Joyce is tomorrow night. Uh, so you know, it should be a interesting show wherever she wants to you know, delve into some uh, unique topic. Um, so you got another show lined up uh, tomorrow with Barbara and Mary. So uh, we'll see everyone next um, Monday and Tuesday as well. So take care. Have, have a nice holiday and a great uh, rest of the week.